0: everyone and welcome back to the truth perspective today is Saturday September 22nd my name is Corey Schenk and joining me in the studio today is Elon Martin hi everyone so welcome back sometimes in history everyone and everything just seems to go nuts we look around today and it's pretty obvious we're living in exactly that sort of time just when you think things can't get any crazier another news headline pops up to prove you wrong This bizarre process has plagued uh, mankind for as long as we have written record, while today it manifests as snowflakes, social justice warriors, bizarre body manipulations, gender confusion, and other things. In revolutionary France it manifested as the reign of terror, and in Rome it culminated in the frenzied cults of Dionysus. It's there that we find some of the earliest evidence of the bizarre spirit that seems to have possessed modern society. The Roman historian Levy, highly critical of the Dionysian cult, wrote of nocturnal rites, sexual initiations, murder, drunkenness, and other bizarre rituals that finally culminated in senatorial legislation demanding the reform under threat of the death penalty. Levy summed up the core of their rights by saying that to regard nothing as impious or or criminal was the very sum of their religion. Flash forward to today, and we see a very similar spirit at work. It's a philosophy that rejects truth and objectivity, and it's a political movement that is authoritarian in its desires to erase the norms and values that many of us see as commonplace. As the philosopher Stephen Hicks wrote in explaining postmodernism, the Enlightenment reshaped the entire world, and postmodernism hopes to do the same. So today, in preparing the groundwork for a broader discussion about a healthier and sane philosophy, we'll be examining the philosophical and historical background that paved the way for the confusion of our postmodern era. That said, I think it's probably best to go ahead and start the show by just discussing some of the recent events and what they uh, symbolized uh, for the postmodern movement and what they tell us about the postmodern movement.
1: Well, we've been seeing a lot of articles. Uh, we've been carrying a lot of articles on SOT uh, in recent months that have defied any kind of. Well, we've seen events that have defied any kind of rational understanding. That kind of fly in the face of of things that we uh, believe or or think are correct or uh, think are just. Basic reality, basic objective reality, not anything that's even uh, particularly out there or esoteric. So uh, we've been looking at these articles and trying to find some kind of societal or or cultural or philosophical explanation, as you um, intimated, Corey, that explains how it is that that the thinking of so many people, um, particularly in Western culture, uh, Western society has been uh, so askew and so led astray. Uh, but yes, getting back to some of these articles that we've been seeing, there, there are a few standouts that we're going to talk about today that we'll uh, later break down uh, with, with some uh, critical analysis that is presented by uh, Hicks's book, and also the book Challenging Postmodernism Philosophy and the Politics of Truth by David Detmer. Uh, who is really, I mean, he was really rigorous in a way that I, I wasn't expecting, but that I really appreciated and, uh, and found um, enriching, enriching, what, what's the word? I don't want to make up words here on a show about postmodernism. <laughs> enriching, <for sure. laughs> Enriching, yes. Uh, that if you follow his line of reasoning, his, his line of logic uh, and reason, um, really give one the tools um, to which one can, can look at an argument or look at a piece of news, for instance, or a social movement, and uh, defied any kind of... Well, we've seen events that have defied any kind of rational understanding that kind of fly in the face of of things that we... Uh, believe or or think are correct or uh, think are just basic reality, basic objective reality, not anything that's even uh, particularly out there or esoteric. So uh, we've been looking at these articles and trying to find some kind of societal or, or cultural or philosophical explanation, as you um, intimated, Corey, that explains how it is that, that the thinking of so many people, um, particularly in Western culture, uh, Western society, has been uh, so askew and so led astray. Uh, but yes, getting back to some of these articles that we've been seeing, there, there are a few standouts that we're going to talk about today that we'll uh, later break down uh, with, with some uh, critical analysis that is presented by uh, Hicks's book, and also the book Challenging Postmodernism Philosophy and the Politics of Truth by David Detmer, uh, who is really, I mean, he was really rigorous in a way that I, I wasn't expecting, but that I really appreciated and, uh, and found um, enriching, enriching. What's the word? I don't want to make up words here on a show about postmodernism. <laughs> enriching, for sure. enriching, yes. Uh, that if you follow his line of reasoning, his his line of logic uh, and reason, um, really give one the tools um, to which one can can look at an argument or look at a piece of news, for instance, or a social movement, and uh, Kind of help with the capacity of of taking it apart, mm-hmm. um, and really, it's critical thinking,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which which we're sorely lacking in. So, you know, on the on the face of it, it's challenging postmodernism, but at its core is critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, on that note, uh, this first article is the transgender strategy exposed. Destroy any academics who disagree with them. Uh this was um, this is a story about a Dr. Lisa Littman of Brown Uni- University um, who had had a look of, at what the trans mob or, or uh, transsexual groups look like when research conflicts with their ideology. Um, she had a peer reviewed paper that was pulled by, I guess, the administration at Brown University. Who, uh, who had or took issue with her findings. Um, the article says, a transgender lecturer orchestrated a smear campaign against academics across the UK in which universities were described as dangerous and accused of, quote, hate crime if they refused to accept activists' views that biological males can be women, it can be revealed. So uh, the story goes on, Natasha Kennedy, a researcher at Goldsmiths University of London, who is also understood to work there under the name Mark Helen, that's a male name, faces accusations of a ludicrous assault on academic freedom after she invited thousands of members of a closed Facebook group to draw up and circulate a list shaming academics who disagreed with campaigners' theories on gender. And the article goes on to say, I can't find any explanation for how a single person claiming to be a woman can also be working for the same institution as a male under an entirely different name. No explanation is offered anywhere, and it is hard not to note the similarity of this alter ego to schizophrenia. The online forum seen by The Times also revealed that members plotted to accuse non-compliant professors of hate crime to try to have them ousted from their jobs. Reading, Sussex, Bristol, Warwick, and Oxford universities were among those deemed to have, quote, unsafe departments because they employed academics who had publicly disputed the belief that trans women are women or questioned the potential impact of proposed changes to gender laws on women and children. So essentially what we're seeing here is a a level of aggression, a level of attack, um, because people are not buying into the extremely subjective, point of view that men can be women, or or vice versa. Uh, And that if you don't agree with that, you are somehow against uh, these people in particular. That you are um, somehow negating their existence. So, you know, it's... It, it's really, it's taken this to, a, to such an extreme level. It's, it's taken subjectivity and irrationality to such an extreme level, especially as it focuses on the very careers and livelihoods and well-being of academics who are attempting to maintain some semblance of objective biological truth.
0: Oh yeah, there's definitely a real, a real war going on, isn't there? Against any sort of academic who states that there's a biological difference between the sexes, wasn't there? I think there was another story about a Swedish professor who was going to be uh, fired because they stated that there was a there was a biological difference between the sexes. That's you know tantamount to a hate crime these days because of uh, the this kind of this postmodern theory about gender roles and transgender theory. Uh, but, yeah, t- could you tell us a little bit about that, that story?
1: Well, this was a story that Sot just carried. Um, a university professor in Sweden is under investigation for, um, oh, this includes anti-feminism as well, by the way, anti-feminism and transphobia after he said that there are fundamental differences between men and women, which are, quote, biologically founded, and that genders cannot be regarded as, quote, social constructs alone, reports Academic Rights Watch. So uh, this professor, Germond Hesslow, is a professor of neuroscience at Lund University. He holds dual PhDs in philosophy and neurophysiology. And apparently he may lose his job um, because a full investigation has been ordered and that there have been discussions about trying to stop the lecture that he wanted to present or get rid of him, or have someone else give the lecture or not give the lecture at all. Uh, He was ordered to attend a meeting by Christopher Larson, chairman of the Program Board for Medical Education, after a female student complained that Heslo had a, quote, personal anti-feminist agenda. He was asked to distance himself from two specific comments, that gay women have a, quote, male sexual orientation and that sexual orientation of transsexuals is a matter of definition. Hmm. <laughs> so um, basically what, what, this, uh, what this student takes issue with, uh, she writes, trans personals already have a high level of overrepresentation and suicide statistics. And there are already major shortcomings in, in the treatment of transgender in care. Should not it be countered? How does this kind of statement coincide with the university's equal treatment plan? What has this statement given for consequences? What has been done for this to not be repeated? So what what the student um, is saying basically um, is that in presenting objective research, or one would hope it's objective, you assume that, uh, that it would be in such an instance, although not, although not all scientists are, are objective, some are politically motivated, for certain. But her point of view is that this will somehow hurt uh, transpersonals or, or transsexuals as a whole by presenting this information. She sees any research uh, in this area in the way that the professor would present it as an attack um, on on this group, uh, that would hurt them. So, you know that that sort of begs a question: Do you do you omit scientific research? Uh, do you not even present it just because it it may be perceived as hurtful uh, or injurious? Uh, and the answer is clearly no. You present it so that it'll be discussed, so that it can be taken apart, so that other scientists and researchers can, uh, can add their points of view to it. Ideally in a scientific context and environment, that is what's done. Uh, it's, it's, it's it's part of the process.
0: Uh, I think that you point out a really important fact when you discuss the fact that, uh, that telling the truth is, is harmful and, you know, then because, you know, truth hurts, then telling the truth becomes immoral, because it becomes an immoral act, and that in itself, as uh, we've talked about in previous shows, that Lubaczewski talks about in the political Poneurology, leads to a growing gap between reality and the self, and a fragmentation of the self that manifests in the, these hysterical fits. And I think nothing d- demonstrates... To uh... for me, the the fragmentation of the minds of these uh, social justice uh, warriors than the fact that this professor that we were talking about is going to uh, possibly get fired for stating that there are biological differences between men and women. But in the same week, uh, Apple just got this deluge of of hate from a mob of social justice warriors who are outraged that they dare make iPhones that are too big for women's hands because women naturally have smaller hands. And so that is sexist. So and on one hand, they are outraged that you dare say that there are differences between the sexes, mm-hmm. but then if you, if, you, if you don't, if you don't take those differences into account, then you are oppressing, you're oppressing them. So, it, at the core of it, there's this fragmentation that, is, that you, just, you can't discuss, you can't argue with it, and it's, right. it's so illogical, it's, you, what were you going to say?
1: Well, just that there's this uh, kind of emotional force behind these attacks that um, are so uh, extreme, they're so intense, that they, they knock anybody who is the subject of one of these attacks on their heels and forces them to defend themselves. And how do you defend oneself against these kinds of attacks? Do you maintain that you've never uh, or, or try sincerely not to be sexist? I, I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a place from which it, it, it's very hard to come back from. Uh, it's like mudslinging at a, at a, a terrible <laughs> kind of, um, a terrible degree. Uh, is, is, I think, what I wanted to say.
0: Well, I think that it comes down to... Basically, where postmodern philosophy and their form of logic really comes from this this whole idea that everything is a social construction Mm -hmm. and uh, uh, David Detmer he he tackles this in his book challenging postmodernism uh, by pointing out that if you state as an absolute truth that everything is a social construction you have simultaneously in saying that refuted your own statement you have said that as an absolute truth that there is no absolute truth and in by doing that you have i mean you you've stated something that if you take it as a coherent statement then what you said is basically very weak you've said that that um, you know I, I agree i accept the fact that this the idea that um, everything is a social construction is in and of itself a, so, a social construction and so and then you said, you know, well, so basically that leaves everybody else the room to make up their own truth or whatever. Um, so what you've said is weak and why should we why should we take it on board? It's not compelling. It's not interesting. It's it's pretty juvenile. Um, but if you take it as uh, so if you take it as incoherent, then it's even worse <laughs> because it just it negates itself that there is no absolute truth but that there is absolute truth as long as I say there is. So there's this, uh, at the very core of this idea that everything is a social construction, is, it is a uh, negation of itself. Mm-hmm. It is a degradation of the mind to believe this. Because let's say that everything is socially constructed. Okay, so what does that really mean? Because what constructed society? besides reality, besides evolution, besides all the forces that go into evolution, besides the laws of physics, which is why as, as humans we have a biological um, predisposition to know, the, you know the, about gravity, about falling. We have a predisposition to know about other people's psychology, their psychological states. We come prepackaged with all of this information gained from you know, millennia and millennia of living in reality. And that is society. That is what, you know, if you say anything is a social construction, you've, you've said nothing. <laughs> and I think that's really the core problem with these, with these people is that they are so loud and furious about absolutely nothing. That's where their nihilism really, really, I think, takes root. And I don't think that they are aware of it. I don't think a lot of them that are just kind of hooked by this uh, philosophy, by this uh, idea that everything is socially constructed, are aware. But the ones who created the philosophy, I think that they were uh, very much aware, because they were very brilliant intellectuals, Um, you know, French intellectuals from the 60s. I think that they were very much aware that what they were doing was radical in positing the idea that there uh, is nothing except language games. And language games are all socially constructed, and that that by saying this they ref, they've refuted themselves, but by doing that they have achieved some level of power mm-hmm. over reality they've 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 made um, mischief and ridiculousness into a philosophy and and then That's basically their metaphysics and their, you know, their Mm -hmm. epistemology, their idea of how you gain knowledge is that there is no such thing as objective reality besides what I say it is. And it gives those adherents to such a philosophy a great sense of power, I think, to be able to preach objective truths while simultaneously denying that any exist because you can't refute that. I mean, on a on a philosophical level, um, I mean, you can refute it, but it, it's still just by doing that, by diverting you into this like, philosophical stance that makes no sense. It, it's confusing and it's it's like a, what Lobachevsky calls a reversive uh, blockade mm-hmm. where you focus on this this uh this thing that they've said as if it's an absolute truth, and by doing that you've you've lost some energy you've um, you know it's you've maybe if you find that maybe there's some truth in the middle, maybe there is some social construction in reality maybe maybe they're kind of right that there is a lot to do about language games or whatever you've still accepted um their their lie, really, and that gives them power, and that's really how I think they've uh, they've managed to take over so much academia is through that, that lure, um, through you know, for a lot of people who I guess they just it's easier to make things up and spend an entire career making things up than to actually do a legitimate a legitimate work.
1: Well, for me, this is one of the most valuable things about challenging postmodernism. It's that he reveals the uh, the paradox or the or the self contradictory nature of statements such as "there is no such thing as objective truth," because, like you were saying, Corey, such a statement uh, is presented as objective truth. So, uh, if there's no such thing as objective truth, how can you how can you possibly assert such a thing? And it leaves out all sorts of. Uh, things about reality that can be observed, uh, as objective, um, and glosses over those. And, uh, like you said, I, I think it, I think it's a, an incredibly, um, uh, confusing, uh, philosophy in some sense, unless you're, you're part of the party, unless you're an academic that is somehow benefiting, um, by propagating such ideas and, and writing all kinds of papers and and basing a career on ideas that that say well basically uh you know what you want to be reality is reality and if you're against this idea uh then somehow you're a hater mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about uh, the ideological possession of Israel Israeli zionism uh same thing, uh, in a sense, and that is you're you're given permission, to an encouragement, to attack with vehemence, any criticism, of the ideas that are put forth uh, about the given ideology uh, that's informed by this 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 kind of confusion of the tongues, which <laughs> reminds us of the story of the Tower of Babel. Uh, where individuals after the deluge tried to build this tower to reach the sky and and Mm -hmm. and in their arrogance attempted to be on the same station of god and were struck by uh god's kind of retribution and and induced a confusion of the tongues where where individuals were now given all these different languages and couldn't understand one another. Mm-hmm. And that's what this seems to be, you know, it's, it's a great kind of metaphor for, for this confusion of the tongues, for this, uh, this language that, um, that most people are finding uh, unrecognizable, uh, not understandable.
0: I'd, I'd just like to go back to this idea that, um, that telling the truth is immoral. I have a quote from one postmodern theorist, um, and I just think it's, it's such a fascinating statement. He, he states that truth claims and violence go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Our sole truth is the certainty that we do not possess truth. So long as one claims to possess truth, the will to violence is inevitable. Now, is there any way to possibly investigate that statement? is there anyone in reality who has not made a truth claim is are you can you really say that if i state i am not a giraffe three-headed giraffe that that predisposes me to violence that's <laughs> it's absolutely unbelievable that he could say that you know if you state that the sun is not the moon does that predispose you to violence now to this individual, you know, this is part and parcel of the postmodern ideology that for some reason you tell the truth and that is a violent statement because that impinges on somebody's subjectivity. You know, if I state, you know, that's why they hate science so very much and you know, honest objective reporting absolutely hate it because the truth hurts when you believe a lie and at the core of this postmodern philosophy as we've seen there is uh, a lie that there is no reality <laughs> and so they just bring it upon themselves and you know it's it's been going on for um you know decades now this this kind of this need to attack and ridicule um but it's really really gotten worse since um since 2016 and i think probably president obama had a, a part to play in this you know kind of they say dog whistling or whatever, whatever with this social justice warrior crowd. And mm-hmm. then when Hillary didn't get in, oh man, you know, then it was, then it was all the, use all the weapons in the arsenal, you know, use all the language games that you can, that you can come with up with in order to, um, you know, take out the enemy. But, um, so we discussed a little bit about the, this postmodern, um, This kind, like some of the philosophical underpinnings of postmodernism, and you know, there's a number of different elements. I mean, there's so many things wrapped up in the term postmodern. You know, it's not just a philosophy. It's a there's postmodern art. You know, when you, uh, I can't remember the name of the artist, but the man who used the the urinal. He just, he was asked to create a a piece of, a work of art um, for this exhibit, and he just came and brought a urinal, and then, you know, he was famous. That was the, the art was that, you know, everything is piss, you know, everything is defecation, Mm -hmm. you know, that was, that was the idea. That's the kind of the artistic impulse um, underlying the the postmodern sentiment, and then, there's a, the other element uh, which we've, which is underlying all of this, is the complete rejection of rationality, which is why uh, Stephen Hicks discusses the um, how the Enlightenment and postmodernism are completely fundamentally opposed, um, and that after the like after the dawn of the Enlightenment, you know the the whole idea was that mankind is a rational animal. And with rationalism, you get individualism, you know, individuals exercising their reasoning in order to pursue their own gains uh, and that maximize their own gains and that also benefit, are beneficial to other people. And when, with that, you have, um, you know, that, that really propels or that justifies a system of capitalism, of industriousness, of science, and of technology, because all of these people are exercising their reason, and the state, um, the big brother, is supposed to just kind of back off, let everybody do their thing, don't intervene, don't use a heavy hand, um, and and society will function optimally. You know, this is the whole free market ideal. But, you know, right as soon as the Enlightenment came, there was the counter-Enlightenment, which... The probably the the founding philosopher that that really got the counter-enlightenment going was uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who he wrote the social contract among other things. So he was obviously a very famous philosopher, Um, but he believed that the root of our moral degradation is reason and that that is the original sin of mankind because it pulls us away from the simplicities of nature and, you know, the socialism of the tribe, that all of civilization was basically just a sin heaped upon uh, the backs of, you know, the oppressed. And so he really gave voice to the earliest uh, socialist philosophers. And so, I mean, you can see socialism and then uh, Marxism as uh, scientific socialism as being this counter enlightenment, this mega counter enlightenment project that's against individual reasoning um, and that's for uh, collectivism and and this what we could look at today as this more postmodern anti rational effort. But Rousseau, he influenced generations of philosophers and he the jacobins in the in the french revolution they were the ones who, uh, that they looked up to rousseau as their leader that he was you know like their christ figure um that there was no one as as uh, high and as saintly as rousseau and they're the ones who you know really kicked off all the beheadings and the murders and you know took the french revolution down the dark path that it did but uh napoleon uh, he rose from the ashes, you know, of the the French Revolution, and he's the one who really took the Enlightenment to the next level for for a lot of you know continental Europe, uh, spreading Enlightenment ideas, and that was the organizing principle really um, be- behind his uh, his short-lived little empire. But um, you know that ticked off you know the Germans especially, and so in Germany you had the philosophical underpinnings of uh, the counter Enlightenment. They took root in individuals like Immanuel Kant. Who Stephen Hicks points out that though Kant is widely regarded as a champion of reason, because he was so systematic, organized, and brilliant in his critique of all the philosophies of the time, um, because at the time there was the the there was a dichotomy in the understanding of how rational man really was there was the idea that man could uh, only be rational by using his sense experiences and there was the other idea that man had innate knowledge you know there was some something innate and spiritual about the man that he could gain knowledge from and kant came along and said that there was no way to gain knowledge from experience, he divided forms of reasoning into two fundamental categories, and one was the analytic, which meant that you know you could say you could make a statement like um, all bachelors are unmarried, and you could know for sure that that's true. Mm-hmm. And because it's defined in the term, bachelors are are necessarily unmarried. So you know that's true. That's where this language game kind of comes into play because that that's language in and of itself. So that's the only truth that you really have. And then with the synthetic reasoning was that you have... To use uh, information from your senses, from your experience, in order to make basically an educated guess about reality, and Kant tried for most of the critique of pure reason to prove that you could, but um, he didn't. He couldn't. He said, you know, he basically gave up on the idea that you could ever really know something for sure outside of your uh, your analytic concepts. And that so basically, Kant came and for all you know, for German philosophy, repudiated the fact that man was a rational animal, and so that, that I mean there was there's that, that had a very large impact on German philosophy because there was that whole counter uh, uh, Enlightenment. Mood about German nationalism, you know the German psyche and the gods and and this Aryan spirit that kind of came out of this this strange brooding mentality um, uh, following the Enlightenment and with all the various German philosophers like Nietzsche and the will to power and Martin Heidegger who decided that that all being was a, was a failure that the being at that time was was non being. Um, and so that this, these are the currents that the postmodern philosophers like uh, Jacques Derrida and uh, Michel Foucault uh, drew on in order to, to create the, their postmodern theory and justify their postmodern theory. But as numerous people have pointed out, all of these philosophers were far, far left Marxist they were marxist philosophers and this was they wrote in the 60s when it was pretty obvious to everybody that socialism and marxism as you know scientific socialism and stalinism were absolutely monstrosities i mean you couldn't possibly point to their to evidence that they were the uh, superior system to um, the more enlightenment-based, you know, capitalistic system, even though there's obviously problems in the in the latter, but the former were just just life-draining, uh, stifling monstrosities, and people were becoming more and more aware of this. And then you have these neo, these Marxist philosophers come out and basically say that um, there is no truth. You, I mean, why even pay attention to the evidence? Just don't even look at it. They're, it's all language games. So you get the impression that they were basically, um, they were, uh, you know, like the kid who just like, well, if I can't win, nobody can win, you know, just knock over the, uh, knock over the, the game, the board.
1: So what you're saying, basically, Corey, is that uh, cultural Marxism and postmodernism are developments that have left the way open to uh, people uh, introducing all kinds of ideas and and ideologies that suit them. Well, you didn't say this in particular, but it it would seem to me that it it would just suit their own uh, proclivities, their own ideas for how things should be that don't require uh, a... Any kind of rigorous acknowledgement of of evidence right. or, or objective facts,
0: right? It's like they, uh, you know, there's still this counter enlightenment spirit that's that's at the heart of it. That you know hates reason and hates uh, everything that uh, you know that the West, quote unquote, you know, stood for in in this liberal uh, secular liberal humanism. Uh, that spirit, and and yet their project, scientific uh, socialism, was a failure. Huge bomb, just just massive, couldn't have been uglier. National socialism, bomb, horrible, ma- just massive, disgusting failure. And so these, these intellectuals still, um, it seems, uh, pursuing similar goals of that kind of that Dionysian spirit we talked about in the origin of the show or in the beginning of the show, they decided that they would just... Make out. You know, they would just make everything up on their own. If they, if you know, if you can't have a system that runs functionally based on objective knowledge, then obviously the problem is knowledge. Ah, so let's go ahead and let's just let's just wipe the slate clean, and we can we can start with these contradictory uh, phrases. But that's that's one uh, hypothesis for for postmodernism. Um, you know, it's another is that a lot of them were just nasty guys, but it is a hypothesis that's that's supported by the evidence. Um, for example, one uh, one philosopher, that Jacques Derrida, that I spoke about, um, he came up with a theory of deconstruction, where basically he said that everything is a language game and that there's nothing, quote unquote, outside of the text. You know, echoing that Kantian idea that everything is the only truth the, you know, truth, quote unquote, only exists in language and everything is, you know, language and you can just do with it whatever you want, um, you know, ba- putting a radical twist onto it though. But he's, he admitted that, de- and this is a quote, deconstruction never had meaning or interest, at least in my eyes, than as a radicalization, that is to say, also when the tr- within the tradition of a certain Marxism, in a certain spirit of Marxism. And I mean, I mean, you can't say, "Oh, then there you have it, folks." <laughs> but that spirit of Marxism—that's why you can say, like, uh, like uh, Jordan Peterson does—that there, that it is a kind of cultural Marxism, and that even if scientific socialism, as it was practiced in the Soviet Union. And postmodernism don't mix in theory, they do in practice because they have similar goals, except the one thought that by using schizoidal ideas, you could radically restructure society to get what you want, which was power. And they did get that, but it failed and everybody saw it fail. And so now you had to take a different track, tack at it. So with the same spirit, these, you know, these similarly probably schizoidal uh, individuals decided to um, create their own uh, fantasy, basically, and then uh, using the attractiveness of philosophers, you know, and the mysteriousness right. of the early philosophers um, and their own mystique and the mystique of you know this crazy postmodern art uh, movement, they seduced a lot of um, a lot of intellectuals and no doubt a lot of willing Marxists and people who. Um, People of the criminal temp, uh, temperament who see in this just one way of achieving their own kind of homeostatic goals of of power of of perversion. Um, as one postmodern theorist wrote, and I think it was in the seventies, uh, basically this this postmodern theory was a sadomasochism. It was a pleasure through pain. That's what how he described it. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, you know, the people who fall, you know, who like that, clearly they're not the. the yeah. <laughs>
1: well, the, the, there's some truth in that, isn't there? Because uh, a lot of these people, uh, the postmodernism, the po- postmodernists, the radical liberal left, especially in the West, uh, assume all kinds of pain and anger and emotion. Once their uh, philosophies or, or political points of view are questioned, they they immediately assume a uh, a defensive, aggressive stance. Um, it's it's kind of like a it's kind of like a switch goes off in their minds and they're they have conditioned themselves to go into some kind of a uh, attack mode. Um, so that's very interesting and and uh, I have a little Jacques Derrida story for you, little interlude. Uh, when I was in college, um, postmodernism um, was beginning to, I I think. This was the uh, early to mid-90s, and it may have been, I think it was around for several years prior, but there was a lot of material and a lot of classes taught. Um, uh, well, maybe not a lot, but there were certainly a few on postmodernism and that tried to validate it. And in, in any case, I was invited to a lecture by Jacques Derrida, and, uh, and so I went. I, I had seen him at NYU walking around in the streets with his big cape and his hat, and, uh, and pointed out to a friend, oh, that's Jacques Derrida, um, not really knowing much of, of his philosophy, except that he had this aura of, of being at the very pinnacle of intellectual um, achievement and, uh, and stature. Um, so I went to the, the lecture with a few friends, and lo and behold, the guy uh, gave the lecture in French. And since I didn't speak a word of French, uh, I was spared uh, two hours of <laughs> confusion of the tongues, <laughs> and in retrospect, I'm thinking, oh, that was probably uh, probably a good thing. Um, and then went out on a date <laughs> with with uh, with someone who was there. Uh, but anyway, I digress a little bit. Um, that was quite a quite an encapsulation of, of how we have may have come to this point of, in time, uh, Corey. Uh, where the the forces of of uh, Marxism, postmodernism, and um, just a, a championing championing of subjectivity has reached this uh, this all time um, hysterical uh, uh, fever pitch in in the minds and and uh, in the souls of a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, We talked about a few different articles before uh, that were uh, illustrative of what we're seeing. There was one more that I wanted to include here um, because I was quite stunned in reading it. Um, This is about a professor who had written a research paper on the differences in sexes. It comes back again to the differences in sexes. The paper is called Greater Male Variability Hypothesis. And basically, he he asserts in this paper uh, the professor's named Theodore P. Hill, incidentally. And he is a professor emeritus of mathematics at Georgia Tech and a research scholar in residence at the California Polytechnic State University in San Luis Obispo. No slouch, this guy. so basically he he wrote about the and researched the idea that among men there was greater variability in the amounts of idiots as well as geniuses so so uh feminist academia took issue with this, and um he's not even he's not even saying he 's not even going the uh, the, the more uh direction with all this and saying that some men are better suited to certain positions he's saying We're more we more highly represent the idiots in the population as well as the geniuses Um, and for that uh, there was a a campaign not to have his research uh, published that was successful in in two different journals Uh, Academics in his university in the university that uh, that his assistant um, came from, they, both of these authors were attacked roundly for for even uh, suggesting such a thing based on research, and this is without even a hearing on it. This is, you know, this is uh, presuming guilt uh, or transphobia or anti-feminism, uh, more anti-feminism. Um, based on the idea of just doing the research on the topic, um, so it was uh, it was pretty disquieting to read. The article again is called "Differences Between the Sexes," and um, along with the other two articles we made mention of earlier, uh, I think really helpful in understanding how far this has gone. Because academia is where ideas are come from; it's it's where uh, the minds and the futures of of society are are shaped essentially, so there 's this kind of wholesale reshaping of uh, very basic views of reality based on based on these ideas that are highly destructive they they squelch all debate it 's like um, it 's like even discussing. Israeli policy towards Palestinians is called anti-Semitism. That's a a very kind of easy analogy here. Uh, You can't even discuss it. It's verboten. It's something that, um, just to even question it, is uh, or should be illegal and and called hate crime. And um, we're we're in a very sorry state right now because uh, all of this is trickling out in all sorts of different
0: directions. Well, I think that's interesting. And you point out he was shut down just for looking for evidence, just for researching. And one of the, one of the whole outcomes of embracing a postmodernist idea, um, postmodern philosophy of life, is that uh, re- you'd reject truth and you reject evidence. And by doing that, you level the playing field between the worst oppressors and their victims because it's it's just one word your word against somebody else's and so you know who who really who really cares who knows the truth really And it leads to these, like this me too mentality that we have. It leads to the um, this Kavanaugh, uh, you know, attack where there's just so many holes in a story, and it just seems so suspiciously contrived and so many strange connections. But at the same time, you have to accept it because you can't, you shouldn't blame the victim. You know, I mean, and who, who knows? You know, if there's evidence or not, who cares? If a, you know a few, uh, how did that woman say it? If a few innocent uh, white men go down in order to take down the patriarchy, <clears throat> there's a, you know that this that is just uh, what, what one part of what David Detmer uh, calls the political economy of truth rejection. Because when you embrace an anti-truth ideology, it relieves everyone of their responsibilities. And we all have our own opinions. So who's to say who's right or who's wrong? And, you know, opinions being what they are, I have no duty or responsibility to verify them. I mean, I can just make up my opinion and it's, you know, it's, and then you have to accept it. So basically that gives me the power to do uh, whatever I want or to make whatever claims that I want and to, you know, whine and throw tantrums. And you have to accept my subjective truth, quote-unquote, you know?
1: Right. Detmer also says, uh, let us consider the position held in common by various, quote, feminist standpoint theories, as Mary E. Hawksworth terms them. This position holds, according to Hawksworth's summary, that knowledge is always mediated by a host of factors related to an individual's particular position in a determinate sociopolitical formation at a specific point in history. Class, race, and gender necessarily structure the individual's understanding of reality and hence inform all knowledge claims. But once again, if the claim that class, race, and gender necessarily structure the individual's understanding of reality and hence inform all knowledge claims is itself a knowledge claim then surely it too must be understood as issuing from an understanding that has been structured by class, race, and gender. This suggests that, for all we know, someone who has been structured differently might have a quite different understanding of this matter, perhaps even one in which the possibility of advancing legitimate knowledge claims which transcend the boundaries of class, race, and gender would be affirmed. Uh, there are sprinkled, especially in the first half of uh, challenging postmodernism, dozens of these types of insightful reflections upon um, postmodernist relativistic uh, uh, thinkers um, who, because they sound smart, because they can put a few sentences together, uh, have accrued a lot of power to themselves, have, have gained audiences, have published books, have given classes. And and what Detmer is asking us to do, or at least presenting as a possibility for us to do, is to look at their statements a little more closely, more closely than we're used to looking at, at statements and assertions made by people in, in positions of authority and academia and, and even politics. He's got a whole section... Uh, in challenging postmodernism, um, about the anti-truth brigade, where he discusses uh, the the public's perception of truth as present as uh, as given to them by the media, uh, and this is something that we have covered extensively uh, in articles on Sat as well. Uh, how one vital piece of information uh, can change the an entire understanding of a dynamic of of something so like one of the examples that detmer gives is this uh, this logical fallacy of uh the middle ground that somehow between the polarizing positions of a debate uh there's the truth somehow lies in the middle and uh doug de pasquale one of our uh editors on SOT, had 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 seen through this fallacy a few years back uh, when he had written the middle ground fallacy in Gaza, um, which introduced information that most people in the West are not privy to in, in through their media um, he did an excellent job of it that's that 's an article I highly recommend uh, he basically uses uh, the the kind of um critical thinking that Detmer encourages in, in people in in analyzing uh, news stories, or reflecting on things uh, we think we know about a given situation. Um, so a great section on that as well where where Detmer is is giving real life he 's not only looking at academics' assertions. He's not only looking at how postmodernism is, is flawed at its very core, uh, but he's also looking at how, how it's been, how it's been uh, weaponized in a way or, or implemented in, in the dissemination of news. Um, so it's really important stuff, a really useful way to, um, to get to the bottom of things if you are so inclined.
0: Yeah, that's what I think. That's one of the, um, the arguments that postmodernists use: is that you know, if everybody disagrees about something about some political issue, then you can't say that there's uh, any truth about it. Because if there was truth, then everyone would agree on the truth, right? I mean, that's just proof uh, that that since nobody agrees, that everything is just a language game, and we can just make up whatever we want. And you see that it's part and parcel of the political culture in the United States. That's basically embedded within um, both parties uh, that that kind of cynicism um, and it's that kind of that cynicism has also been embedded within you know the propaganda uh, movement within the US since Edward Bernays uh, where basically everything that was uh, that was um, that could be used to manipulate people to do something was good was you know was it's Truthful in some way or another, and if, you know, since it was util- uh, it had some utility. Then you would use it, and you know, so you see this postmodern spirit uh, on the left and the right, uh, and I think that's why there, we saw such an explosion in 2016 uh, with the postmodernists. It was because you know they hadn't really been challenged to to a real degree by by, by political authorities, but. Donald Trump's very being seemed to challenge everything that they that they uh that they that they espoused. You know, his his crudeness, his crassness, his you know, the fact that he didn't behave like a like a quote unquote real presidential candidate who just tells you what you you know, who just says things that'll make you feel good, um and then lie and and bomb a bunch of people, but hey, at least it doesn't, you know, it doesn't affect you. So why do you care? You know, no, they don't. These social justice warriors going out and protesting a president who's, you know, given more jobs to the black community than the other president, you know, in in recent memory. They didn't care uh, when Obama was droning children in Yemen. They didn't care when George Bush was uh, bombing Iraq and lying about war in Iraq, and you know. To just neglecting even uh, an investigation into who actually committed 9/11, you know these same types of individuals didn't didn't care, uh, and I'm and I'm I take that as as evidence that. Like Lobachevsky writes in Political Ponerology, this um, ponerized element of society, this society that has accepted immoral, amoral, um, cynical, criminal type ideologies and, and beliefs, has a peculiar sense of who its enemies are and how to gang up and attack them um, in the most cunning and ruthless ways. And uh, you know, so if that's a mark of you know Donald Trump's character. <laughs> you Right. In a roundabout way, um, I, I uh, you know, I take it as a as a good mark that he gets uh, such a lashing from all of these individuals. But um, you know, it it is such a Hydra because it has so many heads. It has its heads in the universities. It has the heads in the neocons and the the whole idea that. You know we're an empire now, and we and when we act, you just have to study what we do and react to what we do. Um, and that whole that whole uh, identity that has been espoused on both the left and the right has created just this this real uh, deadening of American of the American mind. Of the American heart and of the of any way of of understanding objective reality on on both sides, though you know the right still has a stronger foundation in reality at this time. Um, probably partly because they are under attack, um, they know that their values and their norms are under attack, and they can sense it. And you know, like any group, they've, they they uh, they they act accordingly. And in, in one way or another, they they try and mount a defensive to defend the president. Um, you know the the President that they see as uh, being the legitimate uh, uh, president of the United states and and they they gain different evidence. but yeah, that's back to what I was saying about the argument from disagreement um, that that there is uh, just because there's disagreement in any field, there is that doesn't mean there isn't truth because you know you have different kinds of evidence. Um, which would explain why there's disagreement. You know, if you, all the information you receive is from CNN and another person gets their information from a multiple a multiple different sources and, you know, gleans through it, you're going to naturally probably disagree because your evidence is different. You know, right. you don't both have the same quality of evidence. And most people don't get their evidence um, Consciously, conscientiously, they—it's given to them by a media that uses them as um, that just uh, you know as a spectacle. You know this. Look at this new spectacle. Let's put this new school shooting up. We'll air it for twenty-four hours straight um, because this is what gets us ratings. Um, at the same time, too,
2: <clears throat> you also have like in order for there to be a, dis- a disagreement, there has to be some fundamental. Uh, essential agreements in order for there to be something that you disagree on. So you can disagree all you want about how to deal with a school shooting, but implicit in that is all of the agreements about how a school shooting is wrong, how it's, you know, morally bad that, uh, you know, someone's going and killing a lot of children, or in a scientific field, um, you know, you may disagree about how you know, a cell does a certain thing, but you have to have a huge amount of agreement as to what a cell is and what it isn't. Mm-hmm. You know, some basic things about its functioning, its purpose, like, you're not going to, you know, disagree about one cell's functioning here and then, like, at the same time, like, you're talking about a cell as if it's a giraffe and then this other person is talking about it as if, like, it's a square. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh-huh. Uh, when you
1: use the... uh Analogy of the school shooting, Adam. I was thinking about all the information that isn't presented to us uh, about a lot of shootings. Mm-hmm. All the all the facts, all the witnesses that have seen things that are completely inconsistent with the with the version of the news that uh, that that we're getting and, and mm-hmm. shoved down our throats. And and those facts, uh, for instance. There wasn't one shooter. There were three, and
2: two of them looked like they were dressed as, mm-hmm. you know, SWAT That's officers. a good point. In order to like do something, or in order to do something about a school shooting, you have to understand what it is exactly you're talking about. When you talk about a school shooting, do you mean like the the school shooting where um, you know there were multiple shooters, and the evidence is suggesting that there was a government involvement of some sort, or are you talking about uh, something that happened when I was a child uh, in middle school was there was two kids who wrote out a plan for how they were going to shoot up a school, my school. And, you know, they had uh, sleeping pills and they were going to give it to their parents to kill their parents. And then they're going to go to school the next day and shoot it up. Like, those are two very different scenarios uh, I mean, they're essentially both school shootings, but the way that you go about dealing with them is completely different mm-hmm. because they're two very different things. And that nuance is something lost in, in all of this talk about, <clears throat> you know, uh, just because there's differences, we'll, we'll never come to uh, any kind of real uh, understanding about you know, what we need to do. Right.
0: Well, yeah, I think that's that gets back to the fact that uh, when, you, when you read their arguments, really, you get the idea that they have put absolutely no work into actually thinking. No thought through. at all. No thought at all. It's just, you know, it's absolutely uh, pathetic. I mean, but really, how can you possibly expect anything more from a, an, a philosophy that says there is, you know, nothing but, you know, whatever you make up. You know, obviously, you don't need to think. You don't mm. need critical thinking. And that's... Uh, that that i mean when you get when you get of when you get rid of of rationality and reasoning you know what are you left with nothing that, i mean really i mean for the for these uh, snowflakes you you're left with you know just this crazy follow whatever your whim your emotional experience is and you see the madness i mean it's absolute madness and if anybody tells you that you're mad then you get even madder you get crazier and you start frothing at the mouth and if you're a you know on the other side if you're a conservative all you have left is your traditions and i mean you know you can you can do that for a while but You know, this whole entire Enlightenment project, quote unquote, was based on the idea of man being a rational animal and being able to, you know, suck it up and go his own way. And that's probably why Jordan Peterson at this time really seems like Heracles in that myth of the fight with the Hydra. You know, he he comes out and he is reasserting the the, the 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 fundamental axioms of Western civilization that have made it a success, and and doing it in a way that you know basically beheads the Hydra in one blow. You know, because that's one of the, Stephen Hicks points out in his book that that's one of the fundamental reasons why postmodernism has gained so much ground is because nobody adequately defended Western traditions. There are too many people who saw in postmodernism a tool and they used it cynically because these all these ideas empowered them it made it easier for them to write their papers it made it it was a justification for lying to the electorate for you know basically using the media for whatever you want it just was it just made sense in the running of you know the empire this this whole postmodernist ethic um was is utilitarian but and so very few people actually came out and and Said loudly, and also, I mean, the fact that there wasn't the uh, the technology, you know. So even if a philosopher or a conservative or some traditionalist were to come out and say it, they didn't have the kind of um, the kind of platform that Jordan Peterson has uh, in order to to spread this 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 defense of the of the mind of the rational mind, um, because that's pretty much at this point in time. I mean, it's really all that we've gotten. The, the worse the news gets every day, you see people, more and more people are, are losing it. And, you know, that's, that's what we got, folks. It's got your mind. You lose it or, or you use it or you lose it.
1: Yes. And um, on that note, uh, there's, some, there's one more thing I wanted to read by Detmer who gets into how Debates and information and, and different positions get narrowed down to it's either this or that, when it can be something completely different. Uh, what he says is, even more disastrous than the decision always to start with two positions is the insistence that one must always end with two positions. Representatives of the two positions to be presented I am thinking primarily of the broadcast media here are chosen not for their knowledge, rationality, intellectual responsibility, fairness, willingness to consider carefully the merits of the others of the other person's argument, openness to counter argument and counter evidence and zeal to arrive at the truth, but rather for their entertainment value, which in the context of pitting both sides against one another usually translates to a lawyerly commitment to one's assigned side, come what may, together with a readiness to engage in gratuitous name-calling and other varieties of specious argumentative strategies. As a result, viewers and listeners never have the experience of having modeled for them, to use some jargon from educational theory, a rational pursuit of truth resulting in the changing of minds and the reaching of consensus. It is little wonder that so many of those who saturate themselves in the mass media feel, perhaps even without ever thinking about it explicitly, that minds never are changed by rational arguments. And, and this is where, uh, as you were saying, Corey, Jordan Peterson comes in. Because, you know, he is that guy who's, who is committed to the truth. He isn't out there to be entertaining uh, or to maintain a position solely um, because it's his position. Uh, so there you have it.
0: Well, everybody, I think that we've covered a pretty good uh, amount of ground here regarding postmodernism and its philosophy, its social effects, uh, the Marxist underpinnings, and and all of that fun stuff. Uh, so I think that. That probably does it for today, Uh, so you might want to tune in tomorrow for Newsreel with Joe Quinn and Neil Bradley at noon Eastern Standard Time and next Friday for the Health and Wellness Show. When we come back next week, uh, we'll be discussing some more very interesting topics, so please tune in. And until then, we hope you have a productive and extremely (laughs) mind-challenging week. Thanks (laughs) for listening, everyone. Thank you.